Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy and do we have an amazing Terrific, fantastic, superlative show lined up for you today. First up, we'll be chatting with Dr. Julie Peters, PhD. Uh, for decades, Julie has been at the front line as a media professional, a writer, a performer, an environmentalist, and an advocate for social justice. She's also a teacher and a sessional academic. And the focus of Julie's work has been to demythologise and promote social justice for trans and gender diverse individuals. Her personal story is many things, but it really spoke to me of courage and determination. And we'll be talking with her about her life and her new book, I'll try and get this right, A Feminist Post-Transsexual Autoethnography dash challenging normative gender coercion and uh, we'll be asking Julie to explain that title to me later on the show. Um, next up we'll be speaking with another amazing individual that's Associate Professor Ada Chung from the University of Melbourne and the Trans Research Medical Group which she actually established in 2017. A consultant endocrinologist, hormone doctor, Ada's initial research interest was in the effects of hormones on muscle during treatment for prostate cancer. But after working in a transgender clinic, she completely changed direction. Well, changed direction anyway. She has now focused her practice on issues facing the transgender community and conducts research, advocacy and policy. She and her team are devising evidence-based guidelines for hormonal therapies in transgender people, which she will be talking with us about today. Joining the panel are our regular guests, Nurse EpiPen and the freshly minted Doctor Understood, formerly Misunderstood, dash PhD. I've been looking forward to this show for a long, long time. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the radiotherapy team for the next hour. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's, uh, and sunshine. Hello. Oh, I stepped outside this morning. I thought, you know, this is just magnificent. I can hardly wait to get out of this studio. We should have an alfresco radiotherapy out in the park somewhere, don't oh, you think? Wouldn't that be nice? Sunshine, birds yeah. tweeting. Yeah, nice. Our, our legions of fans. Don't mention clamoring. tweeting. Don't mention oh, tweeting. tweeting, yeah, no, tweeting sh- sh- <laughs> Speaking of tweeting, the younger generation represented by <laughs> Dr. Un- Congratulations, Dr. Oh, Understood. Thank you very much. Do, uh, are you requesting that family and friends now call you doctor? Um, yes, that will be, I'll be formally known as doctor from now on. I will not be accepting anything else. Don't answer unless people call you yeah. doctor, yeah. understood. I didn't spend 10 years at university for nothing. 10 years? 10. <laughs> Does it take 10 years to get a PhD from right from the start to the end? Yeah, undergrad, honours, PhD. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe it took me a little bit longer, but... <laughs> what was your PhD in or what is it in, I should say? Um, so I did a PhD in clinical psychology. Yeah. Um, and so we examined an intervention for women who've experienced complex trauma. Wow. So, yeah, I did the um, postgraduate master's training of clinical psychology yeah. as well at the same time. So so you can now see people as a psychologist? Yes. I'm working on doing the registrar program at the moment. And finally, in maybe a year and a half, I'll get my final title. 
and be able to call myself a clinical psychologist or a doctor of clinical psychology. And you're using all that 10 years of research, all that brain power (laughs) and intellect to focus on your topic this morning, which is? Cats. (laughs) A huge passion of mine. I think comparable to psychology, perhaps. (gasps) Is there an intersection between cats and psychology? Um, oh, well, I guess there's a trend going around on social media about, um, I guess, emotional support pets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And cats. Um, And cats and dogs and, yeah, pets in general can provide emotional support. And cats have psychological and behavioural issues. I know a friend of mine just got a cat and it's proving quite difficult from the behavioural front. And cats can also be prescribed um, medication that humans get prescribed for mental health issues, anxiety, for example, yeah. Yeah. An anxious cat. Yes. Tell us about... Cats. Yes, so I've put my um, research skills to the test (laughs) while um, looking at, and I came across actually a fantastic article that was published last week um, exploring whether cats are more responsive to cat-directed speech or adult-directed speech. Cat-directed speech. Yeah, so you might be familiar, um, well, actually, um, Mal and Epi, do you have a pet? Can I? This is my thing. (laughs) She's not answering. (laughs) No, I don't have a cat, but I inherited a father that hated cats. Hated cats? Yeah, hated them. So I don't, I've, I've, it's just, I've inherited that. I don't don't like like cats. cats And you're blaming your dad for it. I don't mind them, but they're not, they don't do it for me. Really? Dogs we, give me a dog any day. Well, we had cats yeah. when I was growing up. Yeah, I, right. I like I like yeah. all animals pretty much. But we've got a dog. We don't okay. have a cat. Okay. Yes. Well, it's similar. Okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'll pose a question to you at the end, Mal. Okay. After the research, after reviewing the research, but so we might be familiar with infant directed speech, like baby talk. I guess. Oh, like goo goo gaga. Yeah. So we exaggerate vowels, um, kind of speaking <laughs> that baby voice, which I won't um, do today. Um, but also with dogs. <laughs> You might like, um, speak – there's the way that humans interact with dogs. Bad and... cocoa, bad cocoa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> good um, Freddy. Fetch, good Freddy. Fetch, yeah. Fetch, yeah. Um, and that's even difference between puppies and adult dogs and also cats as well, which is similar to the way we speak to dogs. And so – You're going to be more likely cooing with a young kind of animal yes, like you yep. would with a young baby. It's, oh, yeah. oh gorgeous, like that yep. kind of high voice. Yeah? Yes, yeah, yep, yep, exactly. Um, and some people – um, may even sing to their cats. Can't imagine that. I'm not. <laughs> not, <laughs> not name names, um, but some people might have developed beautiful songs they sing to their cat. Um, anyway, so the research um, recruited 19 cats. Um, how, do you, how do you recruit a cat? I don't know. I, when I read the method section, they were like recruited, I think, 21 cats and two cats dropped out and like t- spoke about it very much like they were recruiting human well, a, participants. A, a, a and non- a non-compliant cat. Yep, reported their ages, um, whether they'd been de-sexed, et cetera, mm-hmm. and or their, their living arrangements, what families and household structure they came from. Drug use. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they found that cats were able to distinguish between cat-directed speech and adult-directed speech, so were more responsive when um, recordings were of, I guess, that cat-directed speech. Can you give us an example of the cat-directed speech? What would that sound um, like? Okay. Well, drawing from my own experience, I have yeah. a beautiful cat called Jonathan. Yeah. And I would say, hi, Jonathan. Mummy's hurt. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, newly minted doctor stripped of my <laughs> credibility, credibility <laughs> immediately. Um, yeah, so cats were able to distinguish between cat-directed speech and adult-directed speech. And even more, cats um, really were only able to distinguish 
distinguish between adult and cat directed speech when it was spoken by their owners, but not by strangers. Oh, fascinating. And so now I pose the question who is really humankind's most loyal friend? Dogs. Yeah, dogs. But but dogs, actually, researchers found that dogs can't distinguish between strangers and their owners. In dog-directed speech. Yeah, unconditional love from a dog. It's, it's conditional love from a, from yes. a pussycat, I think, is what you're trying to say to us. <laughs> um, but cats will only carry out your instructions. They sound very loyal. Do cats actually carry out instructions? I don't think they really do. I think they're kind of self-serving. And I'm going to get a lot of hate for this. <laughs> no, I love cats, but I'm just totally – I appreciate their motivations in life. Don't you think? And when you yeah. say, and when you say cat, cat, cat-directed speech, so if you, you say – here, kitty, 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 kitty. That yeah. compared to here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. how you would say it to another animal, a human versus or another adult versus your pattern of speech when talking to um, uh, cats or pets. So if I were to call your cat and say, "Here, Johnny, 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 Johnny," yeah, he wouldn't respond as well as he would respond to you. Exactly. Doesn't that just mean he knows what side of the bread he's getting his butter on, <laughs> rather than he loves you more? Maybe. And, well, yes, they did. I will concede they did say that um, cats are not often exposed to diverse uh, human yes, interaction uh, as much as dogs are, you know, going out in public, etc. So I think I think this is just a five-minute way of you trying to prove that cats are better than dogs. And I, and I think I've done it. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I've actually convinced <laughs> do you. Me. Know, do you know what I do like about cats yeah. is how independent they are. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So they, ch- they can head off in, down the street and nobody worries too much about them. Dogs, you can't do that. But they've got cat sense and nine lives. Yes. But yes. I've, I'm in awe of their independence and yes. maturity. And Something that. to aspire to. But don't we also, do you think, I mean, just where was that research published? Uh, it was uh, French. So, um, <laughs> well, sorry. Somewhere in France. <laughs> sorry. Uh, it was conducted in France, but yeah. it was in animal cognition. Oh, and I was, I was really interested because um, I like to – as having just finished my PhD, I'm very drilled into me, like, what's the rationale? Why is this important area to discuss or to research? And I was like, couldn't really quite find. <laughs> I mean, it's very interesting. And it wasn't funded. It was just a, yeah, a volunteer think, study. Yes. But yeah. it clearly drew your eye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. In the studio, we've got Dr Julie Peters. And everybody will remember the warm introduction that Mal gave you, Julie. Um, uh, Where do we start, really? You're just a legend in your own lunchtime. And um, go ahead, why don't you tell us all about yourself, where you've come from and working in the ABC. That means it's not very real. No, it's only no, a short time. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's nervous meeting meeting yes. you, so I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, well, I don't know where did it start. Well, you know, uh, I, I guess the reason I'm you know slightly infamous at the moment is because you know I was um, I'm trans and and basically most people don't get that and. Um, but I've been trying to help people get it by trying to demythologise what trans is about. Mm. 
Right. And could could you step us through how – I suppose I'm going through the um, – was it the Compass Show that you oh, – Yes. Um, the Accidental Accidental Archivist. Archi- yeah, because mostly because uh, most of my friends really consider me a hoarder. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I've got these but, – but the reason – Somebody could could consider me to be an archivist. Is all this all these articles I've collected over d- decades, I've actually put into order in filing cabinet, and so that sort of makes me an archivist. I was re- really embarrassed about being called an archivist because you know at the you know because I do work at the ABC and we actually have real archivists there, and I, I, I actually said to one of them, so how embarrassing is this? You know, being being, being called an archivist, and she said, oh, no, you're probably, you know, you, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure it's really good, and yeah, you really organised. So yeah, no, I'm not. I'm happy being called an archivist. <laughs> so just step us through your experience with the ABC, because uh, well, I, I was a uni dropout <laughs> because I was really having a lot of trouble coping in my late teens, and you know, I went straight from high school to uni as a 17 year old, and I, I went to the probably the faculty that I. Where I, which was most homophobic and most transphobic, which was uh, engineering um, at, at, at Melbourne Uni. And one of the reasons I did that, because I was going through a really difficult time in terms of not being able to really you know, uh, cope, with my, cope within myself. And, and I think one of the things we, we tend to forget is probably the person who, who, who was most transphobic in my early life was me, mm. because I didn't want to be trans. I just wanted to be normal, but a normal woman. And, and so... It um, one of the reasons because up until say year ten at high school I was equally good at humanities and sciences, and but I chose sciences for year eleven, year twelve because I, I understood that in humanities you have to express opinions and, and and I thought I might give something away in subtext, you know. So I was really scared of actually giving an opinion on anything, and and I thought what yeah you know, when I got to that point in year twelve where you think you have to choose somewhere to go. Um, I thought engineering is the most practical down to earth and and I'll never have to you know talk about myself at all. But so you were feeling at that age you weren't right in your skin is that I, I was yeah by that age yes because um you know, I had a really rough time during puberty because puberty went really um really badly for me in that I became like in year 9 that like the hairiest kid in the class mm. <laughs> um and so you know, it, you know that's one of the reasons you know I, I when I heard decades later about puberty blockers, I went, wow, this is amazing. I, I wish something like that had happened to me. But, you know, when, w- one of the ways I've tried to get across in, in a more theatrical sense is, you know, it, it was, for me, puberty was almost like, and I happened to be studying Macbeth, you know, pretty well the year um, I, I had puberty. And, you know, and so it was like Macbeth's witches had cast an evil spell on me. You know, and, and in fact, you know, one of the craziest ideas I've had recently is to turn my PhD into a cabaret, and so this is. A, I'll, I'll give you. A <laughs> hang on, hang on. Just, back, just, yeah. just go back and command bold that. <laughs> what, what did you? What did you say? You're going to turn your PhD into a cabaret? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because I, 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 not, not people are reading my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah. Last I looked, I, I've had I had 2,100 downloads, so that's pretty good. That's, that's great. great. Because a lot of PhDs are only read by six people. Yes. <laughs> the average PhD. Anyway, um, so. Back to puberty, um, I thought, how do I, how do I get across what puberty felt like when you don't when you hated it? And so I I I, um, I said, well, it's like Macbeth's witches cast an evil spell mm. on me. Mm. So your spirits evil gather near, spell to make this life go queer. I have toad testes of quails, slugs and snails, and puppy dog's tail. Voice of boy, oh so sweet, drop octaves manly, very deep. And then I become me. Mm. 
<coughs> breaks my voice, so breaks my heart, my soul and head as friends depart. Command the eye black hairs to sprout with surround so manly and crust without. Pock and mark this girly skin deep black and scar the soul within. The evil, evil spell comes true. Black hairs on legs and face push through. The scheme so cunning I do feel will make to all me male appear. Mm. So you can see it's very, it is Shakespearean. Mm, very. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so and, but were you um, dressing as a woman then or what's... Oh, uh, well, well, uh, the, well. As an 11-year-old, I all of a sudden clicked that I was the same height as my mum. And, you know, so I um, – and I realised, yeah, that, that I was – because I've most, I had six brothers before I had any sisters. And so that, you know, there were no you know, young girl, female, um, you know, clothes mm. in my house. So, you know, so um, – uh, but, I, but I wasn't sharing it with anybody. So I, I waited till basically all my – you know, my parents went to bed and sneaked out at night in my mum's clothes um, as an 11-year-old, which I didn't really understand much about the world and then tried to, what can you do as an 11-year-old at like um, 12, you know, mid, 11 o'clock or midnight? Mm. The one first thing I managed to do was I caught a train, one station, which was really exciting. <laughs> but, but, then, but then I realised, you know, some of the streets which were quite ordinary in Port Melbourne at, at, during the day there was actually sex work happening on. So, you know, I just – and then I, was, I found that guys were trying to get me into their cars mm. uh, you know, at, at that age and I was – I became really scared and they thought, I have to do this in daytime, and, but I couldn't quite figure out how. I remember in the documentary, in the, the Compass documentary, one of your sisters said um, they discovered uh, a dress in your room and they thought, oh, you'd, you'd brought a, a girl back back home and that, that was how they explained it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, close to me, yeah, a lot of my family. Uh, yeah, so I, I, at that particular point, I probably just had as many female clothes as male yeah. clothes. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, young sisters being young sisters, so sort of t- tend to look at everything in your house when, 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 when I ducked across the road to get some milk or something. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about your time at the ABC. Well, I've been there decades. In fact, you know, um, I've now got... They obviously didn't really have a 50-year medal, so they gave me a, a second 25-year medal. <laughs> Fair dinkum, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I should have brought it to show you. Never mind, I didn't. 225s. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but though, because we changed systems so many times, because you know, when I joined, everything was on paper and you know, yeah. in a filing cabinet, and, and they didn't realise when I got to 25, and so I got to 33 before I got my first 25-year medal. But when I, but when I realised how well they organised... I told them on the exact day that I, <laughs> that I turned twenty, I got got to fifty, um, and then because the um, you know quite coincidence, the ABC's now turned ninety because we started nineteen thirty two, um, which was actually a nationalisation of some private radio stations, which most people don't realise because of oh. the depression. Um, the uh, uh, what happened was that um, that. that Happened to be pretty close to when I I clicked over fifty because I started in seventy one. So you started at the ABC in nineteen seventy one. I remember my first day really dramatically because you know, remember I'm, I'm a two year uni dropout by now. <laughs> um, so I started as a nineteen and a half year old, and my very first day I walked into this huge studio and and it, it was um had you know like a sixty piece. You know, band you know it was actually the Kamal show and I can even remember the first piece of music it was the theme from Peter Gunn um, which was you know quite popular yeah yeah that one yeah 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 well done you remember that and um 
and you know, cameras are going everywhere and lights and action and, and you know, singers and dancers and all that. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, so um, because, you know, even, even in my first year at uni, which was, um, uh, you know, I got, I got involved in student theatre to an extent and really enjoyed that. And, um, and then, uh, but I realised at the end of my first year that I had to get out of engineering. And because I, I'd sort of only just scraped through, I, I, I moved to the science faculty and... Um, you know, where there are a lot more women, <laughs> uh, and and I just felt more at home there. But you know, I was still feeling you know really in a mess psychologically, and just couldn't keep up the pressure. I couldn't keep up the, the up the work, and and dropped it and dropped out. And um, and I just saw this ad to work in um, in TV, and I thought I'd stay for six months, and I ended up staying fifty two years. <laughs> talk, talk, talk us through your experiences, especially your trans experiences at the ABC, because that was fairly telling in the in the documentary. Well, um, to an extent, I started to experiment a little bit in the oh, late seventies, early eighties, in that we went through a stage of having a lot of fancy dress parties. Because yeah. we were all pretty well in our twenties, and, and, and we had parties for any excuse we could. And uh, that's what a lot of people in their twenties do. <laughs> um, and and um, and I, I tended to just, um, you know. Dresses, you know, dresses a glamorous woman, and you know, it, it became expected to an extent. Like I did, you know, oh, I can't remember anything. Oh, Wonder Woman, I Wonder did, Woman, yeah, I've seen a few of those photos. Yeah, yeah, and and I became quite good at, and um, you know, although I might point out that I did actually, uh, you know, do a couple of male ones. Like I actually was a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman once, <laughs> which, and actually that was in a way that was quite funny. It was a Saturday night party, and um, next morning. I was rostered for a six a.m. start on divine service, which is you know we, we used to go to churches and do, and so so I came straight from the party dressed as a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. My <laughs> boss was horrified because you know how are we going to explain? Because we're going to a Baptist church in Box Hill. How are we going to ex- explain this? I let him stew for about five minutes before I told him I had a change of clothes, <laughs> change of clothes, but I, it was worth it for the effect. And but, and when you um, did. Um, transition in uh, at the ABC. You were quite, you were very kind of um, methodical about it, weren't you? Like you, you spoke to people beforehand. T- talk us through that. Uh, well, I, yeah, the, the person I had the most trouble with was me as, yeah. as a starting point. So we're talking 1990 now, and and so, and I, and that's a story in itself. It, it, it was around about May that I worked that I had decided this is what I was doing, um, and but then. I just worked through the whole, all the different people I had to tell because you, when you transition, it affects everybody around you. It's not just about you. It's about everybody you relate to. And I thought work is going to be the most difficult, so I'll leave that to last. So, you know, I did fam- – I told you know, close friends first. I told family. I told um, – you know, and I did paperwork things like changing my mm. name legally and things like that so that – then with, with work, I thought, well, I don't know how well this is going to go – uh, so I thought, well, if I give them too much warning, what's going to happen? You know, I, I think they will start to stew and mm. wonder about all these different things that might happen. And if I give them not enough warning, mm. uh, th- that they will also um, they'll panic. So in the end, I gave them two weeks' notice. Mm. And, and I thought two weeks is enough time for them to get across it. And during that first week in particular, I just went through all the different managers and went and made appointments with them and told them what was happening. But, you know, I remember going to HR and a woman in HR said, oh, she just looked, looked at me very blankly and said, what do you think I should do? 
So you know, yeah. so very much part of it being, yeah. and it's still to an extent very much part of being trans is educating yeah. everybody around you, not just you know, well, and particularly in the nineties. Look, I've I've heard a lot of trans people say this that they spend a lot of time going to doctors and things, and they spend a lot of time educating them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What was the reaction like f- f- to the people you told at work, and then what? How did you feel uh, in that interaction? Uh, well, I, I was. Um, I, I knew some people would be very negative, um, and some would be very positive. And um, and, and look, yeah, in reality, m- most people were just probably intrigued. Um, right. So. Uh, you know, probably the most positive. Some of the women basically said, oh, you've joined the right team. Good on you. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, some of the blokes were incredibly negative. Um, and, you know, like you should leave... One of the guys said to me, you should leave your sexual perversions at home. Mm. And, um, you know, one of my bosses offered me redundancy within, you know, about 30 seconds of me telling him. Mm. Or as one of the other bosses basically said, I just went over to the roster and changed my name on the roster. Sure. But, but even, you know, just to be, you know, this is how nerdy I was. I, 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 I changed my name. I changed my legally on the on, on the change of a roster so that one roster had my old name and another roster had my new name so that there was never one roster with both names on it. Wow, wow. What was it? But what was the experience like f- for you? I mean, I, I mean, people must call you brave all the time, and it does strike me as incredibly brave to be able to do. Uh, that. Well, I, I was also quite willing to move on yeah. if I had to, but I also thought that because I, I, I realised that I had a bit of internalised transphobia as well, yeah. and that it would be really good for me to try and learn to deal with it here, at, at, right? You know, in a job that I'm very comfortable in, and you know, and mostly it's fun, you know, because I was doing a lot of rock and roll at that stage. You know, this is before I started my PhD, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because at that stage, I mean, I had gone back and finished my science degree, so I, I did have a. I ran out of money though, so I only had like a, a, a three-year degree, yeah. and I thought, well, yeah, the sensible thing would to do at this stage would be go back and do honours and and, and 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 you know maybe work as a geneticist because I ended up majoring in genetics as it turned out, and um, but you know um, you know uh, you like in that two weeks, um, it turned out I was. Turned out in that two weeks, I was the lighting director on the big gig, mm-hmm. and um, and and the way that worked, we went live to air on Tuesday. And I love live to air, and that's why um, because I love theatre. And we um, we tended to rehearse on the Monday and Tuesday afternoon, and then and then we go to dinner. And and you know, the guys I was working with, the technical producer and the lighting crew, that's like six of us, um, and I was the lighting director. So. We, we, we all jumped in a car to go for a pizza, and uh, but but this time they had time to focus on it, and they're all giving me a really hard time in the car, basically mm. saying, um, oh, "This is never going to work. Nobody's ever going to believe you're a woman. You're you're, you're crazy. This mm. is sh- totally stupid." And 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 they were getting louder and louder and louder as we travelled to the pizza shop. So we got we got and we went in, got a table for six, and 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 they were still carrying on so much, and I was just going, "Oh, crazy people," and. I said, you know, then then the the the, you know, the waitress came up and said, oh, "Oh, you boys are so loud! I'm going to serve the lady first. <laughs> and, and this is before I transitioned. <laughs> and and so you know, and, and they all just went dead quiet. Went, okay, maybe people will believe. Yeah, yeah, proven wrong. Um, Julie, I wanted to touch on a point you raised before about, um, I guess, the burden of education or educating others is often on trans people. Um, you've got, I can see. 
your PhD there and another book here. I was just wondering if you could talk about a little bit about your PhD and if that's a good source for people to check out to educate themselves or even this the other book you've got here. Oh Well, as, um, I think the PhD, to a large extent for me, was, again, the, what, what you said earlier. It's about trying to demythologise what trans mm-hmm. is about. But so it turned out I ended up with, you know, because I, I talk too much, I ended up with, <laughs> I ended up with three... <laughs> In fact, that's a funny aside there. A, a gay guy I knew um, said, oh, I've never believed you're a woman until I just was chatting to you then and you just don't shut up. So, and, and, <laughs> oh, and, hang on. And, and, and women are <laughs> supposed to tend, speak you know, 20,000 more words a day than men do and you just proved to me that, <laughs> that you're a woman. Oh. <laughs> I, anyway, I'm, just, I'm quoting somebody else. I'm not, I'm not saying that's fellow. <laughs> if you're a psychologist, <laughs> you can look at that. So as you can see, I try to take a light touch with of these course. things. Yeah. The th- anyway, I ended up with three research questions. The first yep. was, um, what strategies can a trans person and the health professionals helping trans people use to make their lives more livable? So right. I, I talked about livability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the second one was, because the exception proves the rule, what can trans tell us about gender itself? Yep. And and then because you know I'm still naive enough to want the world to be a better place, what strategy? What, what strategies can we use to make the world a better place? Wonderful. That sounds very, very good mm-hmm. uh, and very educational. And, and uh, even though my, my, t- so my title is crazy, um, it, it, um, <laughs> it, it, uh, even though my title is crazy, I've written it in plain English so almost everybody can understand it. Fantastic. Yeah, um, you did say that when, uh, when we met before the show that it was really important to you that your PhD was accessible yeah. to the to the average reader. So whilst your titles do have a lot of sociological terminology in them, the actual text is very approachable and very I, readable. I think the title rolls off the tongue. <laughs> a feminist post-transsexual autoethnography on challenging normative gender coercion. Don't you my think that favorite, rolls off? My favourite yes. F word. I, I, I can see you putting that to music. It's just absolutely fantastic. Um, we are going to ask you to stay with us for a while, Julie, if that's okay. We'll be back with... Associate Professor Ada Chung to talk about what her her amazing work in the trans community. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Associate Professor Ada Chung, um, firstly, apologies. I totally stuffed up your research, I think. Tell, tell us about you and where I got it wrong. Oh, no. We, um, I, I was saying before that I respond to any name. You can pronounce it <laughs> however you like. But um, my research group is uh, Trans Health Research based Tra- at the University of Melbourne. Right, Trans Health. And you set that up, didn't you? Or did you help yes, set it up? I did set it up, um, mainly because at the time no one was doing any research in Trans Health. And um, actually, it was very hard to find doctors to provide mm. gender-affirming health care. And that's sort of how I fell into it. So I fell into it um, probably seven years ago, having lunch with a colleague of mine. And uh, he was telling me that oh, he was seeing more and more trans people and couldn't find anyone else to see trans people. Mm. And the hospital I was working at at the time actually didn't allow him to bring trans people into the hospital. Mm. And when I heard that, I said, What? How can a doctor refuse to see a patient? And I actually had no idea about trans health at the time, but mm. I just thought that sounded wrong. Mm. So you started to do a, tra- a trans clinic 
um, with that doctor from what I understand. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we set up a clinic across the road and um, started seeing hundreds and hundreds of trans people. Hundreds. Wow. And we just, I just heard story after yeah. story of poor health, difficulty accessing health care. Even when people could access health care, there was no research to guide how to provide that health care. And I came from a research background. I'd done a lot of clinical trials. And so I thought, I've got some of these research skills to answer a lot of these unanswered research questions. And the other thing was that we thought after maybe 600 people, we can't just keep operating in this clinic across the road. We need multidisciplinary care. We need more holistic care. We need um, peer support. We need mental health support. We need you know, social workers, we need speech pathologists, um, not just endocrinologists, which mm. is what we were, and hormones. Um, and so we started doing some research to understand the population of people that we were treating. And, um, you know, we looked at people attending our clinic, then we looked at people across Australia, like was, was what we were seeing reflective of trans health across the country? Mm. And it was. Like mm. we just saw our initial researchers painted this alarming state of health. Mm. You know, 43% had attempted suicide mm. in their lifetime, which mm. is just higher than any other population in Australia. Mm. Um, we saw that, you know, people had widespread experiences of discrimination, mm. like difficulty accessing housing, difficulty accessing government services, unemployment, mm. um, and... Difficulty, you know, most alarming to me as a doctor was that about 30% had difficulty accessing healthcare. And we'd seen that. We'd, we'd heard stories of patients telling us, oh, they went to see this doctor and mm. were told, sorry, we don't see people like you. Really? And, yeah, really. Uh, people going to real estate agents and being told, sorry, we've got no houses to rent mm. or no apartments available for rent. Mm. But then they go back as they're, you know, assigned sex at birth and then they're able to to get a house to rent. It was just the it was the stories we were hearing just really struck a chord with me. It was just alarming. So and you, know, you were on a different trajectory before that. I was. You? I was doing research in prostate cancer um, <laughs> and uh, hormones and on muscles. And hormones stuff. on muscles and and actually prostate cancer is not dissimilar because yeah. we we lower testosterone. Yeah. To, to treat prostate cancer. And so trans women, are people who are wanting to feminise, we were lowering testosterone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, we started, I applied for some research grants and we were successful. I had a fantastic PhD student, Ingrid, Dr. Ingrid Bretherton, who's mm. now finished and, and an endocrinologist herself. Um, and we started doing some research in how do we best, what are the long-term effects of gender-affirming hormones in, in trans um, on, on bone and muscle mm. and heart health. But very quickly, we sort of were guided by what the community were telling us. Like, mm. you know, it wasn't – it was much more than hormones. It was just holistic health. It was mental health. It was access to health services. It was mm. just um, mental health and well-being and discrimination. Mm. And so we sort of – our research group just with, you know, increasing publication of findings and, and research funding, we were able to really pivot to um, – you know, we had a very clear purpose that every project we do is going to contribute to improving the health and well-being of the community on the ground. And now half our team themselves are trans people. Mm. So half mm. the researchers are, are trans people themselves. And so we're really much now undertaking research guided by what the community needs are mm. and, you know, and, and that's related to health service delivery, hormone therapy, but also mental health and well-being. Mm. So your research, what, what, what have you published or what have you been working on currently? Yeah, so we've 
published a lot of research looking at um, demonstrating like the high what, what with regards to health service delivery, the increasing demand, the poor state of health, and 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 that data is a lot of it's been used by government and it's contributed to a statewide training program in trans health across Victoria, and also to the development of um, two new community health gender clinics, one in Ballarat and one in Preston. Um, that now the hospital that I work at is very proud to be part of. Um, we've also done a whole lot of research in accessing hormone therapy, like through different models of care, informed consent versus the traditional mm. sort of mental health um, assessment model. We've done a lot of research in different ways of providing hormone therapy. What are the best ways to give feminizing hormones? What are the side effects of testosterone therapy or estradiol therapy on bones, on heart health? Um, and That's a lot of research. Yeah, we've also, you know, even the impact of COVID nineteen on the on on the trans community, and we've shown that, you know, we've presented a lot of this to the government, like the trans community because of pre existing sort of health disparity, they've been disproportionately affected by Mm. the impacts of COVID nineteen restrictions, and and Mm. mental health has worsened Mm. over this time. So, and historically, people say that there are many more trans people around now. What were people doing when they had these feelings 20 years, 30 years ago? So Julie's trans story was 30 years ago, but what were people, you know? So trans people have existed throughout the history of time. You can go back 2,000 years ago, trans people are are present. We don't know what causes gender diversity um, and there has been an increase in demand for gender health services. However... And, and population-based prevalence is probably somewhere between 0.5 to 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, and lately, you know, we don't know for sure, but we hypothesise it could be related to less stigma. There's, like, mm. more visibility mm. now. Are there, are there some cultures where it's much more accepted and prevalent? There certainly are. Julie yeah. might be able to comment on this. Um, so some of the Samoan cultures? A lot of it, well... So many different traditional cultures have you know, the American Indians, um, India Harajas, um, yeah, the Fafafa, I can't even say it, Fafafa Hini from Samoa. Yeah, um, yeah, we're, 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 uh, yeah they're very, very traditional roles. And so there's not the stigma that there is attached or there was attached and still is attached in, 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 in yeah. Australia and Look, so forth. Talking to some of those people, uh, there's still. A, it's accepted, but there's still a bit of stigma attached for some of those roles as well in those cultures. Yeah. Um, for example, in, uh, I've heard stories in with the Haraja, which is only because in India we think of India as one country, but mm. there are like you know, thirty cultures there mm. or more, and it's, it's, it's considered really good luck for. Um, what we would in the West call a trans person mm. to to say prayers at at a wedding, oh. uh, but but. Um, it's still you don't want your your, your child to become one is to, you know, to, to, for for middle class people. Right. Um, with your research, Ada, I mean a lot of it. I mean it, 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 it's so biopsychosocial. You're doing mm, the biological stuff, right. the psychological stuff, the service delivery stuff. Um, there are so many areas that I could ask you about. If I could focus on one small area, what did you, what what happened? What are the side effects of, of some of the like? What do you have to watch out for as a clinician prescribing um, sex hormones to a trans person? Are there certain things you just have to really monitor? Carefully? Yeah, there are. So, providing mm. hormone therapy is we use the same medications as we would use for anyone with 
low testosterone or low estrogen. So it's not dissimilar to menopausal hormone therapy mm. or, or treating mm. someone with hypogonadism or mm. low testosterone from a testicular or pituitary problem. And so we monitor, typically we monitor the, um, the sex hormone concentrations. Mm -hmm. There seems to be, particularly with estrogen, a high risk of blood clots, a high right. risk of... Um, we think heart disease and stroke relative to the general population. And so we, and also possibly lower bone density in the long term. And so for people on feminizing hormones, I would typically, you know, focus a lot on reducing heart health risk right. factors, so cardiovascular risk factors. And they will think, be things like smoking mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making sure people are living healthily, exercise, mm -hmm. diet, and, and monitoring things like blood pressure, weight, and blood sugar, cholesterol, mm -hmm. um, and, and also making sure they're doing good things for bone health. Make, they have good mm -hmm. calcium in their amount of calcium in their diet, vitamin D is adequate. Uh, and for testosterone therapy, we typically monitor for thick blood. So mm -hmm. one of the most common side effects is that the blood count goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there may also be a higher risk of heart disease uh, when relative to cisgender women, mm -hmm. but not relative to cisgender men. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that we don't understand. So mm. there are some unusual side effects like pelvic pain in trans men mm. and uh, male pattern hair loss that there's very little research about. So mm. a lot of it is research is really in its infancy. Mm. So. What, what do you think are some of the key messages you really want to communicate to the broader community from, from the research you've done, Ada? I think the main message is that trans people are just people. Mm. Trans people come from all walks of life. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, 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 the breadth of people that I see, you know, I've got people from all cultures, all backgrounds, all walks of life, lawyers, doctors, accountants, plumbers, students, um, you know, everybody, anyone could be trans. And it's and from the people I talk to, it's not something that someone would voluntarily choose. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a natural part of human diversity. And I think we just need some, often some compassion yep. and some kindness. Yep. Um, thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Ada. It's fascinating and I'm really keen to um, learn more about it and go home and do my own research. But just, I guess, for the people listening at home, how what services do you offer at the clinic or and how can people go about accessing the services? You know, do they need a GP referral, for example? What's Yeah, what's the process? So the first, um, for the clinics that we work at now at... Um, Preston and, and Ballarat, the first step is usually peer navigation and people don't need a GP referral to access that. They can find it trans and gender diverse in community health um, at your community health in Panch and there's a form to fill out online and a peer navigator will touch base with an individual. And this is for someone who's newly considering um, gender affirmation. And yeah, depending on everybody's journey is different. You know, some people mm. will change their name, change the way they express themselves, change their pronouns. Other people will want to have hormone therapy. Other people will want to have surgery. Mm. Other people will not want any, any of that. And so everybody's path is individual. So a peer, the peer navigator, who are fantastic, um, they can link people in with supports and, and support people into what, depending on what their individual goals or issues are and where they live. So how do people get hold of the peer navigator? What do we... um, so you can Google your community health uh, trans and gender diverse. Your community health, trans and gender diverse. Yeah, and it, it should come up. Okay, cool. 
So, well, to add to that, um, I, for the listeners, if they have children that um, are displaying um, different um, ways of dressing and feeling, the Royal Children's Hospital has a clinic. Yeah, so I only work with adults and so does this service that I just mentioned. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's a starting point yeah, for some so people. For children under uh, children under 18, generally, the first starting point would be the Royal Children's Hospital Gender mm. Service. Yes, and, and I've got and a phone number for them. Yep, go yep. ahead. Uh, it's 93456175. But if you do look up that, you, you the website... You can tell how old school we are because we give out phone oh, numbers. I reckon nobody's going to remember that. I reckon it's going to be oh, the website. Oh, gosh. No one's gonna, what's the phone number? Can you remember it? Don't look at your... 9345... <laughs> but really the website. Yeah. So RCH, um, Adolescent hyphen medicine slash gender hyphen yeah. service but there's a lot of information there and um and then when you grow up for the older transing people um there's the monash health there is yeah so there's different services as well so there's several gp practices that provide gender affirming care um such as equinox gender diverse health service mm. run by thorn harbour health there's um monash gender clinic um, and there's various mm-hmm. other private GP clinics mm-hmm. around town as well. So there's different pathways. Um, support groups are also a great source of re- yeah. information. Like for, for children and adolescents, Transcend, um, Parents of Gender Diverse Children, Trans Family, Transgender Victoria, well, they all have great resources. Yeah. Do, do you know what I love about endocrinologists? I have to say, that would be one of my favourite specialists. I think it's endocrinologists... <laughs> And neurologists, it's because you don't have a procedure, so you don't, you can't build. You know, you. You'd really is, like my family then, because uh, I'm married to a neurologist. I, <laughs> we'll bring them on. Um, no, because I mean, first of all, it's incredibly complicated. When I remember doing endocrinology at medical school, it was all those hormones and the. the I, I just couldn't understand it with the vitamin D, and it was also, it was also complicated, but also. That's yeah. what I love, the complexity. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is what I'm saying, that you, you, you're not just you, – you've taken that attitude of, gee, the human body is complex to the human body's complex, society's complex, Absolutely. culture's complex, funding's um, service provision, and you've kind of spread that focus of endocrinology right across. Yeah, nothing's ever black and white. Yeah. You see, this is yeah. – Yeah. Were you like that as a kid? As a kid, I loved problem solving. I was a bit of a nerd. Um, but yeah, I loved puzzles and working things out. And I think that's why I've become a clinician scientist. Like endocrinology is quite complex, lots of pathways, but I, I love working things out. So that's why I do science and I spend most of my time in research. Oh, wow. Um, and you were saying you got funding for your research. Was that hard to get? Yeah, absolutely. So the only way to get funding is, um, by competitive research grants. So I'd spend, you know, maybe six months of my year writing grants, you're joking. No, at the beginning. Um, so I've been really... And what percentage would get funded oh, out of the grants you're on? You know, NHMRC grants, the funding rate's about 10%. So I've been really thankful to have had yeah. um, NHMRC funding. Um, and let's but, just say writing a grant, as you say, it takes six months. Like, yeah. it can take a long time. Uh, no, it's not so much. It does take a long time, but there's a lot of rejection. Yeah. So there's a lot of applications that get rejected. But, you know, persist. I feel like, you know, so long as... I'm very values driven. So yeah. everything I do, you know, our mission, it, we have a very clear mission. You know, yeah. we want we want trans people to live a life without barriers and that's yeah. health barriers, um, societal barriers and, and, and every project we do 
contributes to improving health and well-being for the community on the ground. And so we've just stuck to that. And um, yeah, it's been there's a lot of rejection, but you know we've we've been thankful to have some success as well. And and yeah, yeah. we. Now, if I could, if I could ask you a question, ask this of a lot of people: What do you know now that it, that you thought com- about completely differently twenty years ago? Like something. Yeah, absolutely. I'd never really appreciated the diversity of yeah. of humans. I never really appreciated the the importance of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I never even heard of the word transgender mm. twenty years ago. Mm. I never imagined if you asked me twenty years ago, I'd be working in this space. Mm. Never. Um, look, Ada, we could speak to you for hours. Um, you, I mean, just your research alone is just fascinating, let alone your personal journey as well. Some phone numbers, if this uh, show has brought up issues for you, there's Lifeline, which is 131114, There are all the websites that we've mentioned um, on the show. Um, I've got to say thank you to our guests, Professor, Associate Professor Ada Chung, um, Dr Julie Peters, PhD. We've got to have you back on the show, Julie. Please, please, please come back. Um, nurse EpiPen and also, not misunderstood, but now Dr Misunderstood. It's been an absolutely uh, fantastic show. Um, as I say, it's, uh, we could spend hours talking with our two guests today. And Ada, you'll come back, won't you? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.